To a special first time we've done this episode of Probably Science, where we have a guest in studio and then skyping in another guest who happens to be very directly related to the first guest. Uh, so first of all, we have uh, Cecil Castellucci, who is an author, comic book writer. Uh, you've written loads of stuff: graphic novels, comic books, scripts books not really scripts librettos but not not scripts not yet my mistake i apologize for picking the less impressive of the two things and and the reason we wanted to talk to you apart from the fact that i've wanted you on the show anyway is you have a a graphic novel out called girl on film which is a, a a part memoir based on your life but references the fact that your father who is currently on the line with us as well is a neuroscientist Yes. So Girl on Film is a memoir. Um, It's about me wanting to be the world's greatest filmmaker. That's how I decided that I was going to be an artist. I thought I was going to be the greatest director that ever lived and or at least, you know, in the running of the top 10 and um, and how I failed. And uh, the whole uh, conceit of it was that as artists, um, we think we're going on one trajectory and we end up on a different trajectory. But as I was writing the memoir, memoirs are pretty hard. I would like, you know, talk to friends about incidents that happened and stuff and uh, read journals that I had and look at photographs. And I realized that everything that I remembered was not quite exactly the same as it actually happened. And so that sort of led into this discourse about memory. And conveniently, my father, Vincent, is uh, a renowned neuroscientist, uh, retired now, whose specialty is the mechanics of memory. Um, He explored long and short term memory. And Mm so um, part of the book ended up becoming, it's a graphic novel, and part of the book became discussions with my dad about the nature of memory and why we remember, why we forget, and why that's important. So. So we should probably bring in our other guest then, yes. uh, Vincent. If we can, if uh, hopefully you can hear us clearly enough on the line. Uh, could could you? Uh, I guess firstly, what is the difference mechanically between short and long term memory? Well, okay, quickly actually, a take home one first take home message is that our memory, the the way the brain works, is not like a hard disk on a computer and all that because our brain continuously uh, construct and re- reconstruct uh, its base of, uh, of uh, archive. And so basically uh, we can say that your brain and my brain are very kind of a same blueprint, but because you have a different experience and I have a different experience and all that, the, the network in your brain a little bit different than mine so in the blueprint for example one neuron go to a neuron a go to neuron b but according to the need uh the neuron a uh will uh if you want to go from short term to long term may need to for to archive to make more uh connection more uh, branches where you release the receptor. You see, basically, a short-term memory is that, for example, I'm talking to you now, and if it is boring, after a while, you will forget it because <laughs> you will not change it. 
But if there is something interesting, your brain wants to archive this in a more permanent way. And it will, uh, there will be neurons uh, that control other neurons that say, make me better connection, more stable connection. But the thing is that continuously, our brain is moving, is, 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 and so nothing is really permanent. And so even the so-called long-term is not permanent. But the, the trick we do is that talking to our friend or taking notes or looking at picture and all that, you reconstruct and you so re-solidify what you have archived. So does that mean in turn, in turn then, sort of like, I guess, related to Cecil's book and her memories, like if you misremember something once, then each time you remember it from then on, you're solidifying the wrong version of the memory. Yes, that's that's one way to put it. <laughs> the beauty of it is that because our brain is plastic, the modulation, the connection are modulating continuously. So even old people like me are still able to uh, have some flexibility to learn new things and forget things and all that. So this is a live organ that, you know, it's like your muscle, you know, that if you don't exercise the, the atrophy and if, for example, you don't walk and you don't challenge your, your bone, your bone will decalcify and all that. So you, you should look at your brain as kind of a living, transforming organism. And there aren't different regions per se for, for short term and long term. It's just different patterns of, of use that determine when something is stored in long term? Or are there actually different regions? Uh, this, this is a, uh, okay, a quick, quick answer of that is that uh, why do you want to archive some interesting things? So it seems that in anything we do, there is a, a rational part of it or factual part and emotional part. And the emotional part use some network that will play on the factual network, as as you say. Okay, so the the brain it's uh, the brain use different connection and different region uh, to uh, archive things. But more precisely, maybe quickly, uh, the uh, there is one for some type of memory, there is one uh, key uh, region called the hippocampus, which is right in the middle of your brain, that really is involved in starting the chains of souvenir and memories and all that. And if this is archived for a more permanent way, now it will be distributed in the, in the different region of your cortex for uh, more permanent archiving. And after that, the trick is to go and fetch that in due time. Mm -hmm. So there is always kind of an interaction. But basically, a quick answer is that your brain is talking, different regions are talking to each to each region continuously, actually. Yeah. And it's it's moving and it's very fluid. 
I think something that was really interesting is like just what you were talking about, sort of emotional, where my dad was talking about emotional memory and stuff like that. That, yeah, that, um, that there are things that, um, you know, become seared in your memory. And you could say emotional and you could be like, oh, I felt so good that time. But also there can be terrible things that happen that Mm -hmm. you cannot forget. So, for example, um, I was, um, you know, sexually assaulted when I was in high school. And I talk about uh, it in the, um, you know, in the book. And I can't forget what the tiles on the floor looked like and all of those things. Now, when my dad uses the word interesting, that's what I thought was interesting when we were having these discussions. When he's like, your brain will remember what is interesting. It's not necessarily something that you think is cool. You know, it's just that it finds it to be. It's the intensity, not the direction. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so that was um, that was really, int- you know, that was interesting to me. And that was interesting to learn. But another thing is um, my dad and I, we, we were both in a. a an IRA bombing uh, when I was little and wow. we, t- uh, we talk about that in the um, in the book as well and you know my dad and I and my brother and mother we were all there and we have a shorthand when we talk about it we just say oh the bombing and when my dad and I actually talked about it um, during the process of writing this book we realized that we both remembered different things about that experience yeah. but together him talking about what he remembered and me talking about what I remembered we kind of got this whole 360 degree idea about what actually happened. And, um, and I think that that's one of the interesting things that I wanted to get to when we were talking about, uh, when I was writing this memoir is how, um, memory is, is a living thing and it's fluid and that, and that, um, and that with experience and growth and wisdom, things that you've learned, you can alter the way that you remember things. And so in a way, things are always just as true as they were when you remembered or misremembered them because you're constantly, there's that plasticity that my dad was talking Mm -hmm. about. Does that sound right, Vince? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's, that's a good example. For example, both you and I remember the key facts, you know, you went on, on the stage and a few minutes later, the the stage exploded and we were hiding in a small uh, uh, place uh, nearby and all that. But there were other details that I forgot and you forgot, but we put it together. And actually I had a similar experience recently uh, uh, I went to uh, uh, my promotion in, in biology. I did my, I got a BSc, uh, Bachelor of Science in Biology at Laval University in Quebec City. And we met the whole classmate, you know, after 55 years. Uh-huh. And it was amazing. It was a similar example of what we have in the book concerning a bombing is that. Uh, all of us, we were uh, 18, we remember common things, but there were facts that some of us remember and others did not. But after that, putting all this together, we have kind of a collective now uh, uh, resetting of memory of different facts and different uh, experience that we had. All that. So it, it, it was really fascinating how some some of the details I completely forgot and others was very vivid and vice versa. I remember something that it did it not, but we put it together. And more and more, there are some evidence about these collective memory too. I mean, because of movies, because of, le- of readings, of, of books and all that, even personal 
experience. Now, are kind of a reprime and a rearchive because you have a kind of a collective memory that that. Uh, but the danger of that, of course, is that people can reconstruct history and all. And yeah. this is, you know, uh, it's called it's a, a word right these days of fake news and all that in how to <laughs> single the, the, you know what is true and what is not true and some people systematically try to scramble your brain and and misguide you right right and that like i i remember um what well, we're talking about sort of terrorism there was about 10, over 10 years ago now, when it was the 7-7 bombings in London. We've talked about this on the show before. Uh, shortly afterwards, there was a an innocent man, a young a sort of grad student who was shot on the tube because he was mistaken for a terrorist by uh, armed police. And uh, the witnesses to the event uh, reported completely wrong information. They reported, like, Things like he'd be behaving suspiciously. He was wearing a thick winter coat in the middle of summer that could have concealed a bomb. Um, he jumped the turnstile and run down the stairs. And then it turned out when they looked at the security camera footage, none of that was true. It was, uh, he was actually wearing a, thin, a relatively thin summer jacket. He had walked through the turnstiles normally and yeah. gone down the stairs at a reasonable pace. Um, but people had sort of retroactively justified that memory and uh, and believed it convincingly. So is that like the more they yeah. then remember it, the more they would then misremember this fact? That's an example, an excellent example, and 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 a good lawyer, for example, can guide the the so-called witness in some direction, and the people will be honest and believe what was not. A fact, actually, and 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 that's that we have to be, and, and there is all kind of a, a a lot of writing about that, about the danger, the pitfall, or the trick that people will do to lead the witness and all that, mm-hmm. and and it, it's fascinating because you can. Oh, another thing is that when people like begin to have some problem with their memory, like uh, in Alzheimer or something like that. Because our machine, our brain, is like to tell story and make coherent view of the world around because everything is so chaotic. We try to make order of that. What we do, even if you have some memory that drops, whatever is left, people you know, uh, will try to make a, sto- a coherent story and it doesn't fit completely what really happened. You know what I mean? So uh-huh. because our brain tried to make stories and it, it works with whatever it is that is able to take. And fills in the rest. Which is so fascinating, yeah. you know, especially like, you know, as storytellers ourselves, right? Yeah. As as creative people, like that's that's what that's what we want to do. And I think that's why stories are so powerful, um, you know, for yeah. humanity. I mean, like it's the it's it's the first thing that was ever done around a fire, probably. Right. Um I, I think that um, the other thing that I really like about that is that um, the idea that we are each other's memory keepers as well, you mm-hmm. know, and that we um, that we can um, sort of that we're the checks and balances, um, you know, with with each other as well as as document as documentation, right. you know. 
And I was curious, I haven't actually read Girl on Film yet, but um, in case, I think you mentioned this already, but it's a graphic novel memoir, which seems like a great format to be able to play with these different versions of, so structurally, how do you deal with it in the in the memoir when you have a different version of, or what, what is the structure of it visually? So uh, there's four different artists, and I should mention them now because I am remiss that I've not mentioned them <laughs> no, yet, right. and only my dad, dad, I love you, and I'm going to mention my artists now. Um, so the four artists that uh, worked on the book are uh, Vicky Lita, John Berg, V. Gagnon, and Melissa Duffy. Mm-hmm. And um, three of them did. Uh, so the book takes place from the time I'm about seven years old when I see Star Wars for the first time, which mm-hmm. was the reason why I decided I wanted to become uh, the world's greatest filmmaker sure. or the world's greatest failed filmmaker um, uh, up until my moving to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so um, three of the artists uh, took a different sort of section of my life. One, um, uh, Vicky, uh, Melissa Duffy did my childhood, uh, uh, Vicky Lita did, um, the, uh, oh wait, um, V. Gagnon did a uh, sort of middle school and high school. And then, um, uh, John Berg did college up until Los Angeles. And then Vicky Lita did all of the memory stuff. So one of the nice things about it is that when I take breaks in the book to, um, consider what I've just written about mm-hmm. and I sectioned off to me each section each chapter even though there's no chapter parts um, was a different genre of film so for example the sexual assault that um, that happened to me is what I call horror and then um, you know the bombing um, is the section that I called the war you know war mm-hmm. war, war film um, uh, you know and in my mind the conversations with my dad is documentary but um so uh, what Vicky did and, you know, in the script that I wrote was me and my dad walking through memories. Sometimes, you know, him and I are in Times Square and I'm like, this doesn't look like Times Square, you know, and it's like that sort of reinforces this idea that we we remember sort of general things yeah, sometimes, yeah. but not a specific thing. Um, and then also sort of like walking through synapses and my dad like pointing out to you know, the neurons making connections and showing exactly like what he was talking about and how that worked. Mm -hmm. And then the idea of having the three different artists do three different stages of my life is that we remember things in a different color almost in our own brains when, you know, so, um, so, you know, a a sort of rosy childhood and then, you know, maybe a harsh, hard high school experience and, um, you know, that kind of stuff. And so, So all of the artists together sort of brought this idea that memory is not just one crisp, clear thing that you remember. It's, um, you know, it's very fluid and it's very different, um, you know, depending on which memories you have. We also had, um, you know, the... um, the 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 four artists um, are you know uh, not necessarily drawing things exactly the way that I remember them even though they had a lot of reference because yeah. they're not me right. so a lot of graphic novel most graphic novel memoirs uh, I would say like ninety percent of them are are writer illustrated by the same person. Oh, and so sense. this was very different in the sense that you know I have this sort of psychic distance from the story and so you know can do more sort of fun dramatic things that you can do in comics which is I don't have to make it exactly real because we're we're talking about I'm talking about the fallacy of memory but also how true those false memories can sometimes be and I don't mean fake news I mean right. you know I mean sort of getting to the emotional heart of the truth of your story yeah if mm-hmm. that makes any sense it does totally hey uh, so Vincent are there are there, are there ways that you can sort of jumpstart a memory or 
dredge your memory out from someone if it's something that's long, that's hazy. Like you, you said, you said when you met up with these people in the reunion after fifty years, you pieced together memories. But if you didn't have those other people who were there at the time, if you were just there by yourself, could, are, are there ways people can sort of help you nudge those memories out of your brain? The, the gathering uh, uh, with my friends, I mean, or my colleagues and all that was kind of a familiar, just kind of a casual and informal uh, gathering. But uh, quickly, yes, you have a psychologist or psychiatrist that could uh, I mean, help you to uh, to go back to your past and, you know, using different uh, anchors uh, will be able to, you know, uh, help you to progress and and forget some bad souvenir by. Uh, so there are techniques to help you to evolve and to recalibrate, quote, your archive. Okay. And is there a suspicion in general? I mean, what's your take on when when in criminal investigations when repressed memories are used? Uh, is that something that you should that people should be skeptical of, or is that a legitimate neuroscientific phenomenon? Or no, this is a tricky, very tricky thing, and there is a lot of debate about you know uh, 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 false memory, you know, and 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 you have to be prudent, and that's uh, that's the reason why you have you have a jury and you have. A, argument and counter-argument and all that uh, it's uh, so you can fool people so you have to be prudent and uh, it's how to negotiate and get at the truth and you know? yeah in a simple way for example uh, uh, Cecil I mean remember what was uh, one person you thought uh, was uh, dead on a given date and oh, you yeah. realize when you, Ethel Merman when, Well, yeah. So in my mind, uh, Ethel Merman, you you know, I have a very, very strong, I'm convinced that, uh, you know, the first day that I went to high school, I, you know, drove in to Times Square and on the radio, it was Ethel Merman had died and they were playing, you know, everything's coming up roses. And, um, and I associate that and have for the past, whatever, 35 years, uh, with my first day of high school, like, if I would swear on it, I still believe it. Yeah, like in my yeah, mind, it's still, that. it's still that. But, um, and this is kind of what sort of sparked my t- asking my dad. But, um, then I, you know, Googled it just to find out, well, what was the first day of school yeah. then, you know? And it, and it turned out that she had died in February of 84 and not in September of 1983. And uh-huh. I was like flabbergasted because, I mean, I would swear on a, every single Bible. You could picture that, the whole Absolutely. Scenario. And, you know, in a way, it was kind of true. I absolutely am, know that, like, I was in a car and it was announced on the radio and I was going to school. It was just at a different, different time. time. So it's kind of like a circle thing. But the other thing that I'm really interested in was, um, you know, sort of memory triggers that we have. Because I feel mm-hmm. like that's something that we use as performers, uh, sometimes like sense memory yeah, yeah. And stuff, you know, and that fact that like, you know, you can smell something, a perfume or something like that. And it immediately, you know, um, brings you back to a certain time or maybe, um, you know. Uh, oh, totally. uh, there's a smell of polish that my school, my secondary school used to clean the hallways. 
like from like one of those like wooden floor yeah, polishing yeah, machines yeah, yeah. and that like in- instant like 20 years later instantly yeah. that school there was a smell of like cleaning product that a hotel that we went to when we were kids that we go to a lot when we were sort of six seven eight still every so often i'll go somewhere that has that smell i'm like oh that's that's the hotel we went to yeah yeah and i think that's what my dad was talking about right dad when you're um talking about anchors like those are anchors that then it it like becomes a sort of through line to immediately bring up that memory because you stored it in a bunch of different ways but one of the ways that you stored it was a a strong association with that smell or that song or that sound sound or you know that um is it actually true that smell is the strongest of the senses when it comes to remembering things and if so why is that no all our senses are strong but you raise a very interesting question is that the smell though the way our brain is 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 structure the 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 uh, the, the nerve cell involved in smelling and there is a direct line to the cortex. A lot of other senses, you have kind of relay station, you know, uh, to uh, uh, one key relay station is a different section of the so-called thalamus and all that. But for for the, the, the smell, you have a direct line to the so-called piriform cortex, which is, is kind of a private line. And <laughs> somehow it's part of our primitive uh, structure because yeah uh, 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 and so basically we have kind of a reptilian brain you know just the basic you know find a mate feed fight flight and all that and you have on top of that the cortex that just sit on that and bring the so-called rational part of it remember that all Together we are human, so it's reason in passion continuously, and so you cannot be completely rational or completely emotional. We work together, but the smell is kind of an older part of the reptilian brain, so it has a direct privilege line, uh-huh. and so that's why people say because it's associated very often to to more emotion very often and and so what you describe in your school because you had a lot of memory of of emotional attachment or your vacation and that hotel and all that for example in my case i was four years old and they took my uh i i I don't know how to say it in english amidal you know is some something in my throat you know that in those days they Tonsils. Anyhow, yeah, yeah, that tonsil. That's right. So, but the the use in those days when I was young, I was four, uh, ether, right? Mm-hmm. So the smell of ether for for a long time was really bad for me because <laughs> you know, I first of all when they took the tonsil and all that, I have ice cube and I was suffering and all that, and you have that smell that came. So every time I I, I was nearby ether, you know, it was really bad news because there was intense emotion, you know, with the. Um, yeah. That's the way it is. Also, how are you coming across ether this often in life? I don't know if I've ever smelled ether. <laughs> I think in the past, there was like, there was ether, ether was everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the and, lab, did you in use? In the labs, oh, okay. yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, in the in the labs and stuff. But yeah. it is really fascinating how complex it is. And so, um, you know, for me in writing the memoir, I was trying to sort of engage with this art memory, um, you know, of like how we get to who we actually become. Yeah. Because although I, you know, didn't make it as a um, as a filmmaker. Um, you know, I am a successful author. I write novels. I write and librettos. And a visual write, storyteller. Yeah. So it's a yeah. I mean, I don't draw, but yeah, yeah. but I do, exactly. It is, you know, sort of akin to film. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, and then like at the end, like, you know, I talk about like, well, maybe I'll get, you know, a story optioned one day. And that's that you might get to where you think you wanted to go to begin with. In but the root looks, or, yeah, yeah, like very, very differently. And that um, and that, you know, one big part of the book is, um, you know, this muse that I had, you know, this guy that I was in love with in high school who became an actor and like, you know, but I like I mean, everything I wrote about him and he is like the biggest like the, and the reason why he's so large in my life is because he was the first one the first person that that struck me that I should write a poem about or that I should you know create art about or whatever and that that made him more important than he actually is but I thought everybody thought he was like the (laughs) most talented the most the best or whatever and I like you know emailed a bunch of my friends from high school and they were like who <laughs> how could who you forget that? That? yeah that's very funny you know and so you know the but these things are true and not true at the same right. time right um Vincent, what was uh, i know uh you, you're retired now but what was the main focus of your research or what was other than just memory in general okay so uh i I was interested in the cellular and molecular mechanism. Uh, so uh, it's uh, when neurons are communicating, they are, as I said before, kind of modulating, you know, the, the signal gets bigger or smaller. And what happened is that when you go from short-term memory to long-term memory, now how you make it more this increase of uh, of uh, of signal or decrease of signal. How is it made permanent? And to make a long story short, is that you have modulator neurons that play, and when it is time to make it in a more permanent way, it they will send a signal to the neuron and tell the neuron to the genome of the neuron make me more branches, make me more receptor, make me more, you know, boost the thing. And so physically, your brain, your neuron is changing. And what I'm summarizing very quickly like that is that I spent 20 years with uh, Eric Kandel, uh, who got the Nobel Prize for uh, uh, his work, and I was part of his team. Uh, so, so this was in New York, uh, New York University and uh, Columbia University. And to study that, uh, we use a snail, a giant snail, and it's in the book too as well. Uh, it, because why a snail? Because the neuron of a snail is like the neuron of your brain, except that a snail has the type that we use at only 10,000 neurons, and your brain has 10 to power 10,000 neurons. <laughs> so, and, and they are tiny and difficult to reach and all that. So remember, when we did those, began those work, it was in the 70s. And, uh, and now uh, there is, uh, with the, the modern neurophysiology, 
people are able to visualize tiny neuron and do all kind of trick to but we are we have no trick like like that in those days but it was one way to learn the grammar you know how what are the basic rule that neuron uh, use to change the transmission of their message between them and all that uh, and we started with a simple organism because what we, that we find a reflex, modify it by experience, and after that, determine all the neurons that you can identify directly related to that reflex. And you can see now with electron microscopy, pharmacology, electrophysiology, and all that arrive and generate some idea it's like the genetic code you know you you did not start with elephant or human being you start with viruses and bacteria because mm-hmm. it was so, so simpler and after that when you learn from the the the, the genome of a uh, bacteria and, and and virus and all that how the code works and how the modulation of the genes are now you created uh, a set of, of rules and you check now in higher organism like human and all that if the rules apply and if they are a little bit what is different and similar and so forth so what we found is that to our surprise i mean even in human being the the human being to transform the connection between uh, the our neurons we use the same rules, but we have more neurons to play with. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what, what tools were you actually using to analyze the neurons of those snails? Were you dissecting them or using some kind of, uh, yeah, how would you actually see that the neurons had changed after these? Well, well it, it, you, we could, as I, okay, you have a reflex and now you find which neuron controls that reflex and now this neuron you can record in C2, you know, in the live animals, or you can isolate the neuron and reconstruct. For example, if you have a sensory neuron and a motor neuron, you can plug them, put them in a dish, and in the dish, they will reform the connection, and after that, use different manipulation to change the connection between these, even two neurons in a dish, and we were able to find, for example, modulation for a few minutes, and other thing, modulation for several days, and we could follow. Uh, we, we could follow the neurons, and 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 after that, analyze what was in the machinery was being transformed, uh, what genes were uh, tickled, and what were the. Uh, genetic trans uh, transcriptor that uh, function and to tell neuron to change its form and make more connection, uh, make more bouton, uh, more receptor, and so forth. So it was fantastic. We could study from the intact animal to isolated reflex to isolated neurons and more and more, you know, uh, uh, precise uh, thing. And which at that time we could not use, and we still don't, cannot use this with our own brain. Yeah. But <laughs> but, we, but we could determine uh, uh, mechanism and suggest uh, possibility uh, to test in higher brain. That's really interesting. 
So wh- where is th- where is uh, memory research going now? Like, what's the next sort of frontier or unanswered, unanswered question in memory neuroscience? Well, right now the 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 the, the, the it's uh, because of imagery, brain imagery, and all that. There is a lot of discussion about when you learn things or you you, uh, you change your behavior or emotion or whatever it is. You know, we are able in a living brain, intact brain, and a, a human being, uh, look at which region light up and which region is important for uh, uh, for different. Uh, encoding different behavior, different memory, different emotion and all that. And at the same time, uh, now there are tricks that you can uh, picture, uh, send, uh, it's called optokinetics. You uh, modify neurons, uh, not in, 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 this is in, in chimpanzee and cats or mice and all that. You can color the different neurons with, di- with different signal. And after that, you can use light to, to selectively uh, stimulate subgroup of neurons and assess their importance for behavior and for memory. And so there is a lot of interaction with that. And there is to more and more uh, uh, injecting modified genes uh, in, in, in neurons and change their, their uh, functioning and, and uh, assess, you know, what is important and not important. It's, it's really uh, mind-boggling. If in the last 10 years I've been... Uh, Actually, the last 30 years, the amount of knowledge about the nervous system has incredibly uh, advanced, you know, and it's getting more and more complex, and it's fun. It really is. Imagine my dinner table conversations. Yeah, really. My mom's also a scientist. She does uh, genetics. And uh, so I was always like, I had a feeling today and I like art. <laughs> it was like all science all the time, you know, yeah. which I did not find interesting when I was younger. But I guess maybe some of it was interesting because yeah. when my dad was talking to me and I was asking him these questions recently, it was like, oh, maybe I was actually paying attention to right. dinner conversations. Yeah. <laughs> Which reminds me, I, I, I was going to ask, um, or I was I guess, thinking about what if there was an advance in the future that allowed you to capture memories perfectly as they happened? And I was thinking maybe that's not even a thing that we want because maybe that we, we have evolved to adapt to the things that we remember to fit stories that make us happier and perfect memory. Like, um, is it Mary Lou Henner who has... Um, oh, yeah. Eidetic memory. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah. No, but remember... Memory, it, there, it is important to to erase some right. of the thing that you don't, you know. So it, it, the uh, forgetting is as most important as lear- uh, learning and 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 keeping some memories. So there is kind of a balance to keep. And remember now, with your smartphone, your computer, and all these artifacts, you are expanding your brain. So you are external drive now. Right, right. That helps. That, that helped you, you know, uh, when I was young, you know, we did not have a, a Google to uh, tell me which corner to turn and all that, right? Because you have to learn. But right now we are kind of freer on that side. 
and and you have other type. Of, uh, I used to memorize a lot of phone number, but yeah. now I don't. So, I don't even know my own phone number. <laughs> so has, it's, it's all in my machine. But this is part of your brain. We are kind of more and more like a cyborg, you know. Yeah. It's a mixture of organic and silicone-based memory. Um, so ha- has there been much research into... So I, I'm the same. I used to know all of my friends' phone numbers, and I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners are in the same position where there's so many more things that they used to have off by heart that they don't need to now. Does that does that free up your mem? Does that free up your brain to remember other things that are less fact based, or does it, or or is it the opposite where your brain isn't getting worked out as much, so just that part of your brain becomes weaker? The idea that people, uh, more and more people think that your brain is beginning to function in a different ways, you know. So to begin with, we have a lot of space and a lot of, uh, of room and all that. But right now, the way we interact with the world is changing because of the machine and, and, and the surrounding. So, so it's... Uh, it is fascinating, and people say that now the way you read things, uh, the way you, 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 you know, you you perceive your surrounding and uh, and facts and all that is being changed, and and probably different region of your brain will maybe devoted to different technique to to uh, perceive the world. It, it, it is interesting. For example, the Inuit uh, in, in the north of Canada and all that, their world, in a traditional world, they had, uh, I don't know, 50 words for different type of snow and all that because this was their universe, right? Mm-hmm. But right now, they are so-called modern and and is, some of these perceptions are changing because they... They, they use snowmobiles and guns and and TV and all that. And their perception of the North is changing. And first of all, the, the, nor- the North is melting too. Oh, that's another thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Vince, but don't you think it must have always been like that? I mean, like, I can imagine that technologies probably changed the brains of, um, you know, people uh, before and after the printing press or, you know, uh, uh, you yes. know other things like that. And- that like, that's part of that's part of the sort of genius of the human brain is that um, is that as technologies come into our circle that we change the way that we engage with the world right exactly because the Greek uh, uh, 500 years uh, before uh, the Norman uh, time you know uh, Plato and Demosthenes I mean they were really upset about writing because they say now it will be the loss of art of uh, speaking you know because these these people had trick you know and they could talk hours you know and they have all kind of trick they call the the technique of room and they will just you know talk and structure in a but they say with writing now we will share the same ignorance you know (laughs) (laughs) And, and 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 so that was a major kind of a perception of the world and the way you interact and the way the oral tradition remember like omer I mean, uh, it, it was a. Uh, it's the, the the writing was uh, no. The the story was created 
several centuries before Omer and his colleagues started to write the, the thing, you know. Mm-hmm. So there was oral tradition, and after that, book tradition. And you're right, Chris, uh, Cecil, the, the printing changed enormously, bring before it was only the monks and the very rich people that have books but with printing everybody had books so it was major major explosion and uh, and it's the same for the computer you know the, the computer one uh, uh, in my lab i had one of the first when i was doing my thesis one of the first small computer lab computer and the memory was 50k <laughs> you know hey <laughs> and 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 the, the the disc was 640k's it was a tape you know and we uh, opened a bottle of champagne because we doubled our live memory of to 100k or something <laughs> like that so but, you know right now it's my my watch is uh, my smartphone is about at a thousand times more potent than that that's yeah, the way it sure. is. but at least it's so the way we were Interacting with a computer is very different from what now we do. And, and you have the advantage, you were born in that generation where it's obvious that computer exists. And I was born before the computer, you know. Yeah. It's like a jet, jet airplane. I mean, I remember in 1942, I mean, for the first jet, unbelievable, no blades. It's just a jet <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, and that's the, that's the kind of that's the kind of cool thing about memory, right? And the way that you recast what you remember, like, um, you know, my book takes place in New York in the seventies. Well, mm-hmm. New York in the seventies and eighties—that's a very different New York than yeah, there is I, now, you know. And so, and so, like this constant sort of layering that we have uh, lenses, different kinds of lenses that we see the past with, mm-hmm. I think, is really interesting. Yeah, definitely, and. Um, Back to the technology thing, just for a second. I was uh, not to be so Cecil. You you seem like you're more like optimistic about technology. Always will always adapt to it, kind of, and not get negative outcomes from it. And like, yes, I see that functionally, like our lives are like the access to information has been democratized, and we can find directions to things better. But like, I do worry, as you said, Vincent. Uh, just you know, you sort of have use it or lose it stuff with your brain. So. As far as just protecting yes. your own long-term mental health, are we losing out from not getting to exercise as much? Or are we exercising differently mentally, you think, and are, are, still getting enough exercise? Andy, are, are you I, asking, would that be like a generation of people with really bad memory because we don't know phone numbers Yeah, anymore? or just early onset dementia or whatever the things can happen if you just aren't using this muscle that you're, we have used uh, in generations before as, as yeah. much, or I don't know. A, a, quick, a quick answer uh, on that is that when you realize that your brain is only 2% of your body mass and but 20% of oxygen and and energy is devoted to your brain so my advice for you is to help your brain walk <laughs> <laughs> to exercise because to to accelerate your cardiovascular system and all that and and you have countless example of that now that what we are doing right now, we are socializing, exchanging ideas and all that. Very good for your brain. And so it's interacting with people live as much as possible, but even with Skype or whatever it is. But on top of that, walking, uh, the natural sport or do exercise, just 
keep moving because it's, it, it does help for your well-being. So a good diet, of course, as much as possible to have a kind of a regular time for bedtime, but that's difficult in, in modern time. But good diet, good friends, <clears throat> but keep your mind alive because it's like your muscle. If you don't use it, it will really iterate because, you know, the, the your neurons are nourished by by circulation of your uh, the blood and 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 so if you don't use them they don't oh yeah because when they are active they they secrete a little bit of co2 and this is a signal of feed me uh, to the cardiovascular system mm-hmm. so if you don't if they are not active <laughs> they don't receive But dad, I mean, like, I I do think that it's, um, I mean, from what I'm understanding is that just because we don't memorize telephone numbers anymore, it doesn't, it's, it doesn't mean that we're not still engaging the brain. We're just, we're just engaging with different things. So perhaps now we have more information at our knowledge. Right. So we have more information uh, that's quicker to get to. So we might not have to make that neural pathway but we have a shortcut to a different neural pathway and as long as we're still engaging with the world and with ideas and stuff like that my understanding dad is that that it is still that you're not a net decrease yeah it's not a net decrease it's just a different it's a different increase or it's a different it's a side it's a sidestep rather than like a step back or a step forward is that does that make sense vince yeah, yeah, completely. And do things and move and interact with people and with things. This is the grandma clock. So. <laughs> I was going to say, I was like, I thank goodness it's not like 12 o'clock because whenever I go to this house, it's just constant. <laughs> yeah, that's a good memory saver also. If you didn't know what time it was, if you didn't remember it was three o'clock, you got this clock every hour. That's going to... Yeah, not enough houses rot. have clocks that chime anymore. Yeah, he's also got a cuckoo clock too, so you can imagine it's like the war of the, war yeah. of the bells and the, and, the, and the chirping. Yeah. But I mean, I, 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 I think that... I mean, I think that when I, what, what Vince was saying too is that um, that one of the things um, is that the children now who are born because they automatically are in a world with computers, their brains uh, look like the what lights up is a little bit different than what people um, from the you know who didn't grow up with that yeah. because they're engaging in a world in a different way and that that's the adaptive process that's the adaptive parts of the brain right dad yes but and but the 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 challenge for all of us young and old is to interact to move really physically move and all that to keep the machine your body in good shape and and on top of that interact with people so computer are great but you know you've got to have a social interaction with other human beings this is the history of the human species and our ancestor the hominidae you know the people that that preceded the human uh, homo sapiens and all that the success of our group was that we interact and and move together and socialize and this now uh, is a challenge is to keep these live socialization uh, because this is very important for a proper equilibrium of your brain. 
It's great advice. That's a, that probably, we've got to wrap things up in a yeah. second, but that's a really nice way to bring things home. Agreed. Um, firstly, Cecil, where can we find out? So this new book is called Girl on Film, but you've written, you've written Batgirl. Yeah, you've I'm written, writing Batgirl right now. Yep. And a bunch of other things. <laughs> yep. And, and there's music as well we didn't even begin to touch on. Oh, yeah. In the past, I was in an indie rock band, uh, Cecil Seaskull and Nerdy Girl. They're on <laughs> iTunes and Spotify if you want to check them out. But Girl on Film, yeah, it's out on um, on Boom uh, um, Archaea, which is the publisher. And, um, and yeah, and then I have Batgirl that's out now. And then I also have, in January, uh, The Plain Janes, which is uh, um, a graphic novel about an all-girl guerrilla art group. Oh, nice. Very, very cool. And Vincent, are there are there ways that, like, if our listeners are really keen that they can track down some of your research and work on online? Oh, send me an email and I can help you if you need, if you are looking for things. I think you can just Google him, Vincent Castellucci, or if you're interested in the yeah. work that he was doing with Eric Kandel, who, like my dad said, won the Nobel Prize for the, you know, for the work. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Eric Kandel, uh, I think, even has, like, yeah, a... Is- a book, right? I, think, uh, I have a Wikipedia uh, article that summarizes uh, uh, some of my life. <laughs> oh, great. Let's get we'll, that. We'll, we'll link to that. Yeah, we'll link to that and your paper and their yeah, Vincent Castellucci, and, and, and you will see there is a Wikipedia. We will, we will put all of Great. that in the show notes and including links to your new book as well, Cecil. And- Which I'm very much looking forward to reading. I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to yet, but we just arrived uh, with you today. So, <laughs> girl on film. Yes. Thanks, Dad, for coming and uh, talking thank, with us. Thank you so much for Skyping in. It was so cool. And uh, and thank you, Cecil, for joining us as well. Great. It was great to talk about science because it's my, one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a pleasure, and um, we, we will uh, talk to everyone else next week. But uh, yeah. once again, thank you so much, Cecil and Vincent Castellucci. Bye. 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 Bye-bye. Bye-bye.